millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thank you for downloading another episode from the Unconventional Soldier podcast, which aims to record the history of the British Army's STAs patrols unit through the voices of the veterans who serve in its ranks. Regular listeners know we like a book, and it's on the podcast, this is probably some of the days we're stranded at Bryce Norton waiting for the RAF to get us in a plane serviceable enough to fly us to some inhospitable part of the world without hotels and room service. So today we're talking to Simon Vincent, and we're going to take a normal break from the routine and cover our favourite books. But as normal, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, his choice of film and luxury item. And we're going global again, and Simon is our furthest guest, 18,000 kilometres away in New Zealand. And we'll start off with his story about how he ended up serving in 473 Battery. So, Simon, over to you, mate. Yeah. Kia ora koutou. Uh, yeah, I'm here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and um, really glad to be here on this um, podcast. When it comes to my time in the troop, I guess in, in some ways um, my backstory is a fairly familiar one. I left school at 16 and was working in one of um, Thatcher's Youth Opportunity Schemes. I was paid £25 a week by the government, and my boss charged me out as labour at $25 a day. So he was getting a nice little earner out of it, and I was digging lots of holes. Good came practice in handy. for you, mate, yeah. Absolutely, came in handy in later life. Um, but I was a building labourer, and um, of course, Colin, you got to experience my skills later in life when we were in the uh, barracks. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yes. I remember that, and I think Kevin was also involved in that time. Absolutely. Annoyed you both, and I came back to find my door had been bricked up after I'd been on leave. Yeah, well, you know, that's um, that's what you get if you're messing with me and Kev. Yeah. 
but um, yeah, we're, I, was, I was working um, for a builder and building was okay, but um, you know, I, I really wanted to do something more constructive. So um, I, you know, I thought about what else could I do, and I didn't really have a drive to join the military, which. I, I guess it's interesting. My my dad had spent time in the army. He'd um, done his national service, and he ended up doing twelve years or so. And he was in um, Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers. Uh, he was shot in the army in Malaya. He had a cheap tattoo to cover the scar, but but that was literally all I knew about his time in the military. And it hadn't really been a something for me to think about. Um, Did he ever? Aunt, so sorry, Simon. Can I just yeah. jump in? Did he ever? Did you ever get to the bottom of what happened and why he was shot? Was it just something he wouldn't? Yeah, talk yeah, about? no, it, it was a kind of um, a, a good story. He was just in a, um, they were in a, a mobile patrol and he was driving some kind of truck, a, a Remy truck, and they so they were going along through the, the jungle tracks. They just um, would randomly zig and zag off off the track and, and around, and apparently he zigged or zagged, and just at that moment a sniper had shot and it caught him in the up uh, in the forearm and basically wow. if it had been driving straight it would have gone straight into the upper chest so uh, yeah he was uh, lucky to get away with that one I think um, but but yeah you know he he sort of mentioned little bits about his time but it it, it wasn't a big um, incentive to me or, or a drive for me to follow in his footsteps in any way um, my eldest brother actually was serving in the Royal Marines at the time and he'd um, just being around um, he was down in the Falklands, so so eighty two. So it was about eighty two, eighty three when I was had just left the left school and was was looking what to do. But yeah, no adolescent desire to join the military. I was kind of too busy trying to be a young punk about town, and um, for some reason, um, and I think it was a recruiting brochure I saw which had promised me a life that would be a blur of driving tanks through mud, windsurfing. And selecting from a dizzying array of dinner menu options, I found myself in a recruiting office in Liverpool. And, uh, you know, from there on, I was sent to Sutton Coalfield to do um, the, the sort of pre, um, pre-basic training um, selection, if you like. And through there, I was given, you know, as many options as I like. And I chose artillery and was sent down to Woolwich. Why the artillery? Um well, 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 that is sort of um, comes a little bit from when we get round to the books. But, but my my choice on artillery is, is slightly based on my my first book choice. But I do remember my my brother um, was in the royal tournament that they used to have at Earl's Court. Yeah, yeah. And I'd I'd gone down, and we, we'd gone down as a family to see him him there. And I remember sort of the Marines were kind of you know typical Marines gunko and and. They looked cool and all of this. And I was thinking, wow, you know, maybe I should give the Marines a go. But then I bumped into what I later found out was, was 2-9 Commando Royal Artillery. And they were saying, yeah, we're, we're para and commando. And we do this, this and this. And I thought, wow. So, so I sort of went, well, that sounds like the sort of thing I'd like, like to do. And so, yeah, I chose artillery and was sent down to Woolwich for basic training. Um, went through the usual fun and games I suppose of basic training and um, once I finished that I did my basic signals course down at Woolwich and I requested um, to be an OP signaller 
So I was, of course, sent to an air defence regiment, um, <laughs> two to air defence regiment, the Welsh Gunners in Dortmund. And, uh, not even yeah, Welsh. Yeah, not even Welsh. <laughs> and I don't even like rugby. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm from a rugby league country. And so they sent, you know, I, I think they had something in for me. But um, yeah, so I ended up in Dortmund. And my first ever time on a plane, flying on 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 a herc out of Brighton to to Germany, and um, um, ended up uh, spending a couple of years in the command post um, of a rapier battery. And I'd sort of got used to that routine of of life in BAOR um, exercises, areas, guard duties, um, and in my case, extras, extras, and more extras. Um, <laughs> I sort of reached a point where I wanted something more. And um, I, I guess I was actually quite fortunate that I, I saw a post. Simon, before on, you go on to that, sorry, mate, sorry to drop, yeah. but I, I think it's interesting to cover this bit. But I thought I want, you won't take offence when I will say to you that you're always a bit of an RSM's nightmare with a so your casual attitude to yeah. army regulations yeah. regarding dress. But also, I think you are quite a. You're a bit more. You're a bit different from your normal soldier. You uh, in, in your attitude and uh, your sort of your outlook on life. Was that was that one of the reasons that you found yourself in a bit of trouble getting loads of extras and things like that? Yeah. Well, uh, there were there was two things in my case. One was, um, and I think uh, David Jones sort of picked it, and, and you did last on, on last uh, one of your the other podcasts in that um, me and irons and bulling rags and all that <laughs> didn't go very well together. Um, you know, and, and part of it was my attitude. So, so for instance, when I was in basic training, um, and for those who don't know basic training, um, you go through, there's a lot of military bullshit, really. And so you have to uh, bull your boots. So that's polishing to the, the highest sort of standards. Um, you make a bed block. All your blankets have to be folded to, to you know, be exact degrees and the exact sizing and all of this and you know you'd, you'd essentially spend a day doing you know tough work as, as someone new into the military so all the basic training and most of your evenings were spent bulling up the block bulling up your boots and doing all of this work well I very quickly realized that it didn't really matter what you did they'd come in the room uh, be inspecting uh, staff they'd look at your boots say this isn't good enough and throw them out the window now, some of my <laughs> colleagues, I guess, in the military, in the basic training, would then pick up the boots and spend hours and hours pulling them up again. And I was going, hang on a minute. I'll just give them a quick polish. They're all going out the window anyway. Yeah. And and so, you know, I'd, I'd find myself something more useful to do with my time. So I, uh, <laughs> so I never quite got on with all of that um, you know dress standards mm. and um, we actually had a i mean we even had a it wasn't our passing out parade but we had a, a parade with, with a, a number of generals coming down and it was a kind of inter training facility competition and our um, ds staff member at, at woolwich um, came up to me and went right vincent you're going sick this morning and i went but I'm not sick. And he went, you are, you're going sick. And I later found out it was just so they could get me off the drill square while, uh, while everyone else marched about looking good. So, you know. So, That's yeah. a badge of honour, Simon. Yeah, you yeah. should be I, proud of that. I, I was never quite, um, you know, that way. But but I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd be overselling it if I also said I was, I was a rebel. I wasn't a, you know, a backroom lawyer. I wasn't one of these people who was always, 
pushing against the system too much, but but I I was into my music. I was into I'd been into punk rock, you know, um, all my life, and I still am. And so when I'd got to Dortmund, um, I'd be blasting out um, records with lyrics that maybe the military didn't find um, amusing, and so I'd quite often get a telling off for that. Um, I also found myself in in Dortmund. Um, I found a bar which was completely off limits to <laughs> military personnel, um, but I loved it. Um, and I'd, I'd pop in there, and every so often it was raided by the MPs, uh, the military police. But um, the staff there were really good at hiding me. I'd be hidden behind the bar or, or in one of the back. All, the, all these skills you're developing for the absolutely future, mate. You knew they could be- <laughs> Come in handy in, the, in my later military career. Oh. Yeah. So, so what point then did you decide to volunteer for selection? Um, basically, I, I just saw a, a note on um, regimental orders, which were asking for volunteers to pay, take part in a, a selection process for for a unit. And I think at the time, and I, this is where my memory probably lets me down, but um, I think it was called Opsambezi, or they had a name for the selection at the time, which, which again gave nothing away about what it was. But um, I, I was also fortunate in um, our patrol, uh, sorry, our battery signal sergeant in um, in the raping battery, as in, he was X148. And um, so he said, look, lad, this is something you should be thinking about. Give this a go. Because, you know, I think he recognised I, I wasn't enjoying the, the everyday life of um, the battery there. So... Um, yeah, I applied, and again at the time it was something where, and, and I think this is one of my what helped me actually get through selection. But at the time um, when you applied for selection um, from our unit, you had to get it signed off. So the RSM of the regiment and the two IC actually had to sign off your application, saying, you know, yes, you can go on this course. And it was, you know, it's that thing where you march in and you, you're introduced to the Army's um, supportive network that says, you know, you're never going to pass. We'll see you back here in a day or two. So, you know, you already have a bit of an extra motivation. And so, yeah, I, I put my application in. And uh, a few days later, um, didn't have far to go, just um, across Dortmund to start selection with, with what was then known as um, the Stay Behind OP Troop. And, and that's where I met you, Cole. And um, the rest is in glorious history. Yeah. yeah, I remember I was, mate, at the final part of the initial selection. We were sat in that bush for 24 hours, not having a clue what we're doing, freezing our backsides off. And there must have been, what, 16 or 18 people yeah, that yeah. turned up on that? And it was just yeah. you and me left at the end. And But some good guys there. We're talking about force filled with the wayside with a bit of an... A den, you know, a bit of extra, I don't know, care or incentive. Yeah, that got through. And, and I think it's one of those things. I, you know, I know from from um, your previous podcast that, that that's been been mentioned, and I think it's absolutely right. But there's also that, you know, again, I think um, the troop was or and and is, I'm, I'm sure, um, fairly unique in in the type of soldiers it it recruits and, and it trains. And I remember they did the, you know, the, the classic drawing a, a line across the path and said, okay, now it's a 10K tab with your Bergens or you can get in the wagon. And, I mean, you know, yourself and myself were the only two who stepped forward and said, well, we'll carry on. So while some did fall by the wayside who may have been great, potentially, there was also that bit that said, well, well they were self-selecting as well. Yeah, no, I think that's yeah, a fair yeah. point. 
I think you probably stepped forward before me, mate, and I thought I've got to stay I think with you. I, I think I tripped. I think that must have tripped. Or pushed. Yeah, yeah. Pushed yeah. from behind. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, 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 yeah, that, that was, um, you know, we, we were on selection there. And, and then, so, so once, I think that was always, um, I've, I've kind of over the years, I've, I've looked back onto that. And there's a couple of things that stand out, um, you know, for me in selection. And one was um, the very first, first evening prior to selection starting I sort of you know went up into the attic space and you, you're given a, a camp mat or a camp bed to you know get your gear down and I, I looked across and you know there was there's groups of people talking and and I'm I'm sure this was you Colin I, I don't know for sure but I'm sure there was somebody there with maps who was cutting the maps up and putting them together to you know we've been issued maps and was actually making a you know the set of maps into a useful pile and I thought that looks like a good thing to be doing. So, so I'll do that because yeah, I, that was me. Yeah, I, I just had no idea really what I was coming into. See, I was lucky, mate. Unlike you, my battery sergeant major was fantastic. He taught me all that. He took me out and and during work time, took me extra map reading, uh, showed me basic skills like you know joining up maps and all the rest of it. So yeah, I, I, I distinctly remember doing that. And guys were just sat around on their beds talking. Yeah, and and, and then you know. Then it was away, and we we were underway, and, and that was selection. Um, but but again, I, th- I think one of the things, and I know it's been talked about um, previously, but but what I've have come to really appreciate about selection of the the course itself was was how it built up. So you know that was the thing. You could come there with with lacking some skills, but but it, you were you were taught and you were expected to learn, but you were shown how to do things and, and get on. And I think that was. You know, a really good part of the the selection process or, or the, the course itself is that, you know, there's a, a priority topic, if you like, for this week. And at the end of the week, we'll be going on an exercise and you're going to be demonstrating that you've picked it up. And I think that's a it, it sounds fairly obvious, but it, it's a, a really great way of um, training people along. You know. It's a classic explana- yeah. uh, explanation, EBIP, demonstration, yeah. imitation practice, isn't it? Yeah. Which is and, getting... and... Yeah, sorry, sorry I, I was just going to say that's one of the things that that, that amuses me now in, in sort of um, my civilian life and working in in various organisations and big organisations. It's like they're coming round to EDIP as if it's a new thing. Yeah, you know, they're yeah. saying they're saying, oh, th- this is something we should try. They might give it slightly different names, but I'm saying we did this a long time ago. You know, yeah. but um, yeah. it, it yeah. shows shows it's useful. Absolutely, mate. So. Do you want to move on to the books now? Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. So, Simon, and it, it could be any order. I mean, I know Colin's been a bit regimental saying five, <laughs> you know, from the bottom to the top. But, you know, feel free to pick and choose. Um, yeah. So what's your first book then? Well, yeah, I, this has been a re- really tough one for me. I mean, and it must be tough for you, Kev, because I know how many books Mills and Boone publish. But <laughs> for, for me, I, I like reading, and I've I've always been been um, you know deep in into into literature and and, and um, spending my you know putting my nose in a book. So so I couldn't really pick what you might call five best books. But but what I've picked are, are books I think. They're more like RVs along the journey um, of, of where I am now. So um, my first book, um, well, you've got to start with a patron saint of artillery observers, um, Spike Milligan. <laughs> um, so, so I've gone for Spike Milligan, Adolf, Adolf Hitler, my part in his downfall. 
Um, and, and as Spike would have said, this is part one of a trilogy of seven books. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just a, a fascinating insight in, into someone's time um, in the military during the Second World War. And maybe some of our longer, younger listeners are not too aware of Spike Milligan, but, you know, he was the godfather of comedy, really, from um, or, or what we might call alternative comedy um, from the 60s onwards. And But, but he wrote um, books about his time in the military, and he wrote them in, in a, a mix of styles, a lot of uh, diary entries, narratives, um, conversation sketches, and imagined dispatches for military hierarchies. But, but it, it was something where he really took you on that journey and said this is what it's like for someone who doesn't know what they're getting into finds themselves part of a big military machine and dealing with war and um, I, I think something that's going to be really pertinent to to um, a lot of the listeners and especially after I know um, JD's uh, podcast as well is um, Spike suffered from uh, what we now know as as PTSD but at the time you know, it was still sort of seen as shell shock. He was involved in the, um, the campaign at Mont Cassino in Italy. So, uh, you know, massive, heavy barrage and, you know, how he came through that and, and how he readjusted to life um, both in the military and afterwards is, a, you know, makes for a fascinating read and, and a light and easy, accessible read to what, to what it was like in the Second World War. That said, I, I can't remember which book it is, but there's, there's one of the books he describes the moment he uh, gets caught up in the open under artillery fire, and that's when he gets what what was known as shell shock. But he describes that moment, and then when he was sort of medevaced out of the front line, and it's a very poignant, uh, totally unspiked Milligan-like chapter, the way he writes it. It's very poignant. It's extremely well written. And you get a real feel for the care amongst the soldiers as well. In fact, a guy offered him a cigarette as he got on, put his arm around him and said, you're going to be all right. And that caused him to break down. But yeah. Yeah. And that's quite a contrast from the Spike Milligan of the goons and the, the absurd humour. Yeah. And then that really nice, nicely well-written passage. Well, I think yeah. throughout the whole series of books, though, he uh, uses comedy as the, the driver. But throughout, there's little snippets of very serious... And, and very, um, I don't know, the non-funny points, which, which you can lose if you just read it skim through and you don't understand the context. I think it, I think he's probably underrated as a writer in that sort of way because he brought across that whole story, but with the seriousness as well. And like you say, at times he, he'd, he'd add in that, that little snippet and he's shown his true self. Yeah, I, I think so as well. I think one of the things is, you know, if, if you imagine – and. and prior to Second World War, um, the writers from the First World War as well. Mm -hmm. So you you tended to get, um, I I guess classically, we look at it, we had poets who wrote about the the, the horrors of the First World War, and you got um, officers' accounts generally, and and a few, um, but for some really good diary, um, published diaries from from the trenches, if you like. So so you you got... um, you know, array of different um, perspectives, but yeah, you're right. Spike Milligan, he he told an important story. He told it in a way um, that was accessible to a lot of people, and and I'm sure he made a, a lot of people people think. But I, I think mm-hmm. for me at the time, especially reading um, prior 
to joining the military. Um, it, it did set me up a little bit for for what I thought I was I was going to to find when I actually joined. And I remember again one of my um, on my very first day at Woolwich being offered um, would I like to spend the evening in the in the guardhouse because um, as soon as the instructors met us off the truck and they started right you horrible little lot I was thinking. They're just out right out of Spike Milligan or Panzer <laughs> Army or something like that. I thought, are they taking this seriously? Uh, you know, and so I, I was kind of laughing away, going, "Oh, what what are they like?" And but no, they were taking it seriously. the absurdities yeah. straight well, down the line. Well, but, uh, you know, the classic one is um, for Spike was when he was um, rebuked by an RSM, you know, with silence when you speak to an officer. <laughs> you know, so, um, but but when you've actually served in the military, you go, yeah, it's not as far fetched as that sounds. <laughs> no, absolutely, mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I can recommend Spike's books to MD. So, my first book is Papillon by oh, I'm, I'm murdering French here. Papillon by Henri Charrier or Charrier. Yeah, uh, Papillon is. <laughs> I was going to sound like an episode from a hello, hello, if you jump in, Kev. (laughs) (laughs) So so, um, Papillon's French for butterfly. It's because Henri had a butterfly tattoo on his chest and he was a career thief. And the reason I've picked this is a bit of nostalgia for me because it was a book my dad gave me when I was about 10 or 11 and uh, he loved it and I loved it. And then when videos were first invented and it was one of the first films you got out on video, I'm used to sitting down and watch it. And they made a remake a couple of years ago. Absolutely nah, travesty. Can't do remakes. Yeah, it was utterly dire. But uh, I mean, the re- it has does have a tie into the troop as well, and it's a real story of adversity and survival. He was sent to the French colonies in uh, French Guiana, uh, which were really brutal. And um, it's a tale of how he he escaped two or three times, got caught. Uh, but just that perseverance. And when he got caught, he ended up with like two two year stints in solitary confinement, and that is like total solitary confinement in the in the dark. And you get a feel for that in the film as well. But I was reading a, a thing recently in the papers that was saying that they reckon now it was not entirely true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's taken a lot of stories that were true and, and pushed them together and made them into his autobiography like but for for a great adventurous tale it's it's very hard to beat it yeah i i i I wonder you know whether because it it was one of those books which i think a lot of people of of, of maybe our generation had read and i think in the military i I, you know i wondered whether and and not to put too fine a point on it but but some of the the harsh treatment that was reflected to prisoners if we didn't actually see some sort of counterpoint to to how it was for us in you know in basic training and things like that you know obviously not to the same degree but but we could sympathize with someone who was pushed through you know a very very what felt like a very harsh um uh situation um towards you know, that whole, point, you know mm-hmm. break them down to build them up again sort of um aspect of it but but yeah. i also read i don't know if you read um blanco his follow-up yeah, is that when he yeah, lived, yeah. lived in Venezuela? Rather, yeah, yeah, and and it was again. I think that was um, an interesting one in in terms of uh, there were there was some talk that a few of the stories were and and that was essentially about a, a bank robbery uh, that he took part in. Whether that was actually um, not entirely down to him, and it was was other stories put together as well. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. definitely want a life survivor yeah, yeah. and, and, and a chance as well. So, what's your choice then, Kev? My, my well, a bit like Sai said at the beginning. Um, I haven't chosen my top five. I've, I was looking at some of my books. And I was trying to find books that were maybe not mainstream in the same way. And I remember when I was doing my content after capture course, there was a reading list, and I talked about it in one of the earlier episodes when we talked about the interrogator. And so another one I read was um, Robert Keyes' Crowd is Not Company, about the time when he was a pilot during the Second World War, was shot down, and he spent over three years in a German POW camp. And he, he talks about, obviously, arriving at the camp, dislocation of expectations, and then that become a normal life. Obviously, you know, there was there was people from Dunkirk and other places that being prisoners of war since the whole of the Second World War they became institutionalized and he calls them goats and sheep. The goats were the ones who were trying to escape. The sheep were the ones who sat there disapproving because it became a, a normal way of life. And he talks about, you know, a little bit about the psychology of being a long-term prisoner of war. You're, you're an enforced, captured um, environment. You don't know where the, you know, in 1941, 1942, you don't know where the Second World War is going to end up. Are the, you know, are the Germans going to win? The Allies didn't look like they were going to win. And every so often, new people would be brought into the camp as they were captured and obviously in the news. But it talks about how how, this, how it became a mini-society, cliques, outcasts, you know, and all the rest of it. And there's a really good film I watched a few years ago called King Rat, which was exactly the same sort of thing with John Mills, Jason Fox, and um, I can't remember his American actor's name, George Segal. And again, fascinating watching a... Japan, you know, prisoner of war for the Japanese, and again, how society had changed, the class system, and everything else had changed. So, uh, not an entertaining read, as in like a Christmas light story, talking about prisoner of war. But I thought it was really good. It was uh, one of a few books I'd read on long-term captivity in force, um, how people survived, how people, you know, always was trying to escape, and it was that mental piece to it. And one thing people don't mention, you read a few of these books, the sort of the factual books that, you know, in fiction it's always presented as, as the heroic Brit trying yeah, to escape. Yeah, yeah. But on the flip side of that, there's quite a few guys, and I'm not being judgmental here, who are conscripted into the army and just yeah. thought, you know, had, sit, had a traumatic time on a battlefield yeah, yeah. and thought, why, you know, what am I going to go back to? I'm, I'm yeah. going to sit out, I'm going to get back here, I'm going to stay alive, I'm going to go back to my family at the end of it. Yeah. yeah, and and I, I, yeah, again, without uh, belittling anyone's experience, I, I, there's some more other interesting sides to it. So I always remember um, when we went to to visit Colditz, um, mm. a few of us just just as the uh, the wall had come down, and and hearing some of the stories um, from the local guides' sides said, "Oh well, there's a, a wine cellar down there, and the prisoners could could choose the bottles they wanted, and they had the meals brought in from the." <laughs> The local um, uh, hotel, because you know these were high, high class, high, high value prisoners. So they were at, they're all officers, uh, as yeah, well, yeah, aren't they? yeah, yeah, very, very well treated. And you know the, the stories were things like the you know a group of French were, were tunneling out, but found themselves in the wine cellar and oh, what to do, what to do. And, you know, so 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 and there was a yeah a different perspective to um, to everyone's experience, and and I think that's. You know, I've I've read quite a few books about people in both in civilian prison and um, military prisons during during the war. And yeah, it it is it it really puts a mirror on people's um, 
personality, I guess. And, yeah. you know, we, we can never really know what it would be like for us as an individual. So, um, fair play to everyone and however they dealt yeah, with the they found themselves. Going back to your analogy, Simon, that's what, that, that's what 473 battery selection does. You're in a, Absolutely. You're in a confined environment. You're being watched all the time. You know, and you even found you mentioned it on selection. You know, I mean, there that you and I sort of paired off. We we found kindred spirits, and we thought, right, there's somebody I can get on with and probably get through this with. So I'll I'll stick with him. And uh, you know, even in those small environments, you're getting a very similar outcome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, mate. So what's your um, second choice? Well, yeah, I, I guess. Um as I was reading and, and during the time, and, and this is possibly just as, as we were in the troop, um, there was a lot of books that got shared around. And um, I, I guess this is prior to the internet. So, you know, it was if someone had been to the UK, they might come back with a book and, and that got spread around. And there was a lot of military memoirs going around and, and they were mainly written, you know, this is my story and, and you know, I want to sell books, if you like. And those sort of books only increased um, after the Gulf War. Um, you know, things like the success of Andy McNabb's Bravo 2.0 really led to a, a sort of a deluge, if you like, of, of first-person memoir. And, and I think it's actually now a, a major uh, component of um, SAS training is the creative writing course, um, <laughs> aspect, I, I believe. Um, you know, and, and apparently, you know, the jungle and survival phases have got nothing on that um, little old lady who comes in to make sure the grammar's up up to speed. <laughs> but um, I, I read a, a, a great book by a, a SAS soldier, Brummy Stokes, um, called Soldiers and Sherpas. And it's um, about his time, um, along with another SAS soldier, or Bronco Lane, who who climbed Mount Everest. So I was Bronco kind of, Lane was the next gunner, wasn't he, Simon? Yeah, yeah. So he so he was um, gunner, and then then um, a, a few of us would obviously have met him down at the the Lerp School when he was based down there. But um, the story is essentially of, of the successful um, climbing of, of Mount Everest, and they were part of a military expedition, but they weren't supposed to be the climbers. They or, or the those peaking they but but what they did they worked really hard to show they were better than everyone else essentially they'd get up earlier decamp move forward carry all the all the gear back and forth doing all the um, base camps and the staging camps and they they just created a, a position where they were the only ones who were the right choice to if they got a chance got a shot to climb to, to actually get to the top, they were, the, were going to be the two to did it out of pure dedication and hard work. And, you know, the, the classic element to really make it a story is on, on the way down, um, they were caught out in a, in a whiteout, really terrible conditions, dug themselves a snow hole, didn't think they were going to get out. And they had an issue with the oxygen bottles. And so basically they looked at each other and Bronco Lane took his gloves off, undid the, the oxygen sealant on, on the bottle and, and gave them the oxygen, which meant they would survive. But it, it basically meant he, um, he lost his fingers. Uh, they, they both lost a number of toes, but, but they, they lost the, he, uh, Bronco lost his fingers, but, but they got down safely and pure dedication. 
And um, what, what I always, again, this is one of my, um, you know, you just land on your feet sometimes. And so when I went down to the LERP school to do my um, patrol medic course, part, part of the course was you had to um, give a lesson to the rest of the, the course. And I was given hypothermia. And hypothermia as a subject, we will know it's really important, but it's it's not the most riveting subject to talk about. So um, I went and saw Bronco and I said, um, any chance you can help me out with this? So, you know, I'm, I'm set up there to deliver my lesson on, on hypothermia and cold weather injuries. Bronco Lane marches into the front, goes up to the podium, <laughs> takes his gloves off, shows what's left of his fingers and says, this is important. Listen. And walked off stage, and <laughs> I'm set up to deliver a great lesson. So, you know, it, it was it was one of those, uh, you, you know, things where um, having that knowledge of what he'd been through yeah. probably, probably helped me uh, convince him to do it. Yeah, aren't his um? I don't know if this is I've got this wrong, but aren't his fingers in a museum somewhere? Yeah, that, that's right. So they they ended up going through a couple of museums, and one was. Um, like the National Geographical Society or, you know, one, one of those those types. And um, they they were eventually moved because they were seen as, as unseemly. They didn't want, you know, too many visitors. But I don't know where they've gone now. I know, I know they're on display again somewhere, but yeah. Mm, a lot of wizard yeah. burnt sausages somewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that... yeah. It, it, it's one of those things. And, and again, I don't know if this is shared um, with most people like ourselves from the military background but but i really got into reading a lot of books about adventure and 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 uh, expeditions so solo treks to the south pole and north pole and, and those and, and mountain and jungle expeditions um and i think it really did tie in with you know our military background as well we we wanted to push ourselves and these were were people who were pushing themselves in in, in a different way yeah yeah. But the qualities are very similar, aren't yeah. they? No, that's good, mate. Thanks for that. So my second choice is a book called Delta Four by Gary McKay. And he's written, he's an Australian army officer who served in Vietnam, and he's wrote uh, a good three, four books about mm. Vietnam. But yeah, Delta yeah. Four, I think, is the best because it concentrates on life for an infantry company at platoon and company level. And um, it's, it's a really good read. It's um, In each chapter, he describes things like tactics, uh, he describes the all arms components. He will discuss uh, morale and how he maintained morale in the jungle environment. He interviews his old enemies. He went across to Vietnam with some of his guys in his company and they talked to VC and ARVN uh, Vietnamese soldiers. So, and he also, the other important bit, he discusses that bit when they returned home. And the Australian Army, like the American Army at the time, they got short shrift when they returned home. They're pretty much ignored. And we covered the Battle of Long Tan uh, a couple of podcasts ago. And it wasn't until about a decade ago that those soldiers got the recognition they should have got uh, for, for their services during that battle. But uh, Kev, you did a, an, a, an exchange with the Australian Army in the early 2000s. And uh, at that time, what, what did you think of, compared to the British Army? Yeah, a lot of it was very... They'd gone down, they had to choose a route, I suppose, as a, a defence force. And they were very much down the American tactical routes. And I think that's some of it came from post-Vietnam. And because I, I didn't realise that the Americans had got ba- massive bases in Australia as well. Um, and they do a lot of joint exercises with them. And 
in the Pacific areas, they're seen as a you know one of the closest allies. So I was, although they they wear the same or similar uniform and the ranks and stuff of the British Army, they 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 moved away from us a lot. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It was interesting to see that because when I went to the jungle school and stuff like that, it was very. It was very more, very much more like uh, American forces, and they've gone down that route deliberately. I think. And, and the probably, jungle, sorry, mate, in the jungle school, do yeah. they still use a lot of stuff that they learned in Vietnam in the jungle school? Yeah, I think I think jungle training across the board because I, I obviously went to Brunei as well. Jungle training is is very similar across the piece because we've all learned those lessons from each other. We do exchanges like I did an exchange, so I was taken across certain skills from our side, but also I took away a hell of a lot of stuff that they were learning and using, especially on the technical side, which, you know, as we talked about in previous podcasts, we had nothing technical. We had what we carried on our back and a rifle and a, and a radio that sometimes worked, but they had moved forward with a little bit more technology, very much with the Americans. And there were some great bits of kit that worked really well for surveillance. Uh, they had, a, well before us, an image capture and transfer, which is basically a way of getting the, the photograph from the battlefield over the radio back to the CP. We didn't have any of that. We'd still be doing brevity trying to explain it. And they were sending a photograph of it. And I thought, well, this is fantastic. This is, you know, cutting edge. It wasn't really. It was just that we were... So behind. far behind, yeah. But, yeah, but they embraced technology in the way the Americans did. Well, it's um, I've always admired the Aussies and and, and the New Zealanders as well, and they've always had a good reputation as, as jungle fighters. Hmm. Probably not for this podcast, but it's interesting to see. I don't know if you've seen it over your way, Simon, but Kevin and I were talking about it the other day. There is the the whole hoo ha about the SES regiment in Australia. Yeah, Does that get much publicity. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, that's getting publicity here, and, and I think it. it um, just just to go sort of back in, into the general side of it, um, things like um, Long Tan, I've, I've been here 20 years and every Anzac Day, which is the um, the equivalent, Australian, New Zealand equivalent, if you like, of, of um, Remembrance Day here, they show the documentary, uh, Vietnam's really well covered on, on TV all the way through. So, so I think they did get out of that... Um, you know, let, let's pretend this didn't happen. Sort of no, attitude, good. and they've moved on. But, but I'm I'm also um, sort of interested in. Um, I, I think all of us have probably read lots of books about Vietnam. And I'm I, I'm sort of interested in in why it held so much interest for us um, and and for our generation. And I think there was. 
the chronological closeness in in time yeah. you know to when we were growing up and and it was obviously got a you know it was televised to a to a large degree um but but i think it's also one of those ones where um you know veterans were were telling their stories you know we always have these um ideas that, that people didn't want to talk about the wars you know the first world war or the second world war and but but i think vietnam was very much in in people's faces a lot more and people were interested in knowing and you you did get those different perspectives um it, I've, I've always you know found it interesting um you know a lot of people from australia and new zealand in particular travel through southeast asia it's, it's a sort of rite of passage you know when you leave school is southeast asia and and a, a lot of people are coming back with with stories that maybe they hadn't heard in their own countries but but they're getting a vietnamese perspective and cambodian perspective yeah. um a lot more so yeah well, i think it also is embedded culturally in film in our day wasn't it yeah. uh, apocalypse now platoon all those films are coming out and going back to lerp school I remember when i did my lerp medic course you had uh an sf uh american medic who'd, who had served in vietnam who was you know teaching on that course so as you say it was very close in time to us it wasn't that, that long ago previously um i'm getting i'm losing track now so who are we on to now there's you, you kev yeah cool. all right mate far away go back up slightly about uh, the first world war and we talked about earlier about uh, the, the writers of the first world war mainly being officer class or poets well <clears throat> my choice is again it's probably not as well known is a guy called patrick mcgill who wrote the great push and he, he was a poet before he joined the army. He was an Irish poet. He was a labourer. Um, and in 1915, he joined the London Irish uh, as a stretcher bearer. And it was about 1980s they published his book. And, and after the war, he wrote more poetry, other books as well. So it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't an unusual path for him. But he, he talks about... Um, Battle of Luz, and, and as a stretcher bearer, he gives an insight into the First World War from the from the ground level as a non-officer class, um, as an Irishman as well, about the war, about the characters, especially in the London Irish Regiment, the sense of humour in the trenches. He talks about that, the, the, the soldier's humour. and You'd definitely need one, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but I think he give it, he give it a... A view that is unusual from the, from that period because a lot of the First World War books after the war were written by the officer class and successes and all the rest of it and downplayed the horrors. And then we had the poets who would write, you know, fantastic poetry about the horrors. But what we didn't have was a lot of the enlisted soldier, the the, the volunteer, as it was, who would write their story. Uh, it's only in later time, as as Sai says. Um, Soldiers are now writing more and more books about their experiences. But at that time, you know, it was a very patriotic time after the Great War and all the rest of it. It was always about the success. And I, I thought it was a – it just gives you a total different feel for the majority of First World War books. I think that's a good point you make about that book, though, is, is that the, the common soldier never had a voice in, in that war. And it was only sort of as a centenary was approaching that they realised they had to capture some of these stories. And yeah. uh, you had like Private Harry Patch was interviewed yeah. all the time. And it was a good push on to try and get an oral history down about these guys who uh, endured 
uh, without complaint the misery of the trenches. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and it, it's something we we're, we're seeing here in in New Zealand, and, and particularly for the the Maori battalions who who went out were mm. they they were almost um, you know sidelined from the history originally and um you know they're, they're now capturing those stories and, and and you know right through from um first world war second world war and and vietnam as well you know so yeah we, we're starting to hear a lot more I, th- I think one of the things and i think it it um it appeals to me and, and the, the description you've given there kev is because um it's one thing i always thought about you know when i was at school in history um you know it was all henry the eighth did this and such and such did that. And I was always thinking, but what did the bloke on the street do? What was life like? <laughs> you know, what did, yeah. what did it even look like in those days? I, but we were never given that side of a story. Because yeah. uh, actually, compared yeah. to the court of Henry VIII, it wasn't particularly glamorous. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but but, but we, we sort of wouldn't know. And I think that's why these um, books and, and stories that are coming out um, – now and 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 obviously at the time are so important because you get that view of yes the big picture is important but also what did it feel like yeah that that one person in that one one place at that time it's it's probably the only book i've read about the stretcher bearer as well in the first world war you know you know he's, he's running around the battlefield unarmed picking people up all the horrors that they go through and and he just got it across really well and I think that Commonwealth piece as well, that's becoming more clear over here, sign in the last year, but the, the contribution of the Indian Army and, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, the, 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 the battalions from Africa and things like that, yeah. you know, largely written out of history and, and wrongly, you know, yeah. absolutely wrongly. And, uh, I, I was very fortunate, actually, in my, in my time in the troop to go on an expedition to Pakistan. And I always remember um, uh, getting out at um, Islamabad Airport and there was a quote from Winston Churchill um, on sort of on the wall of the airport, and it was a typical airport sort of quote to have. But it was taught, I can't remember it accurately, but it was basically saying, you know, these wonderful people from from all over, let's welcome them when they come come to our country with open arms, because what they did, they saved Europe and all of this, you know. And it was what he'd said to the what was then the the Indian and Pakistan before partition. But it, you know, it, it was Churchill acknowledging that we have so much to um, pay our respects to, to those Commonwealth and, and, and other nations who were involved as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to third choice, Simon, for you. Yeah, so I, I could probably say I, I read this by accident in a way, in, in that, um, you know, we, we've just been talking about some of the books that are um, the different perspective. And, and this one was um, a, a great writer, Norman Lewis, who wrote Naples 44, and um, in some ways, some of the, the classic grand tour type writers um, who, who wrote about um, ancient Greek history while they're wandering through Europe and, and the like, um, there's a touch of that to this book, but only a minor touch. And um, Norman Lewis was an intelligence officer. Um, in World War Two, and he essentially his story starts landing on a Sicilian beach, um, and it, it was littered with um, U.S. Army um, essentially stationary equipment, office equipment, and he moved into a wood where the, the German dead of the day's fighting were 
you know, we're, we're, we're surrounding him. And then he stumbles through that and comes across these Greek temples. And so he's sort of setting the scene about how we, we build cultures and destroy cultures. And, and so it was, I was thinking, oh, this is a bit highbrow for me in terms of, you know, I don't know my Greek architecture for my Mexi architecture, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but, but it was a, a, a very, he then moves on and, and goes into, um, to mainland Italy and, and ends up based in Naples. And, and it's, it's just a fascinating insight to, to people's lives. So he, he's essentially reporting on the aftermath of, of the war for the Italian population. Um, you know, they're, they're absolutely starving. They're, they're making choices which, which people will criticise them for. So, you know, there was a lot of um, prostitution, uh, forced prostitution. There was a lot of... Um, illegal going on but it was all done out of a, a need to survive so you know they, they literally already ate everything from the zoo and the aquarium and so they were then yeah. finding what you know how can we survive and so he's sort of um telling this story of what it was like all the corruption all of the actions of the governments and, and these people who you know are essentially blameless this is a civilian population um women and children who are trying to survive the aftermath of the war and and amongst all of this um vesuvius erupts uh and he he gives the you know what's seen as the best first first-hand account of, of that eruption at the time but again he's he's sort of bringing it into the perspective of, of what's gone on in in the war and it, it's not a anti-war book as such it, it's just sort of saying hey this is the situation you know have a think about things before you make these big calls in the future. Yeah, That's I mean, fascinating insight. I think that, that those sort of end of war days are quite interesting. My granddad was in the Royal Engineers, and he he served, fought in North Africa all the way up through Italy, and ended up actually just on the outskirts of Dusseldorf. And he wouldn't really talk much about it. We did talk about that last phase before he gets sent back to UK, and. Echoes what you're talking about there. You know, they went in there and they're quite hard faced at first. And they would go up to houses and say, present them with a, a bit of paper. You've got four hours to leave this house and only carry what you've you've got. And then they would take over the house as a billet. And he told me a story about the curfew and uh, him and his mate were on duty one night. And there was some uh, they saw some people down the bottom end of the street and they were they had orders they should have opened fire on these people and they didn't. And just as this was happening, an officer came along. And uh, anyway, he, he got up on uh, squadron orders for not shooting these civilians. And both him and his mate said, you know, I'm not going to shoot civilians. You know, that's we're fighting against that sort of thing. And you're saying we're open yeah. firing these people who aren't a threat. But um, I was just that makes me recognize what you're talking about there, that my granddad was saying. Yeah. yeah. Who's up next? Um, it's me, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's cool. So my, my book is Normandy 44, <clears throat> and uh, it's written by a guy called James Holland, who does a great podcast called We Have Ways of Making You Talk with Al Murray, the comedian. Oh, right, some yeah. Re- yeah, some really good stuff in it. But it's a great antidote to the Germans were brilliant and we were crap sort of revisionist history that took off in the 60s. And I first got a glimpse of this and a book a lot of soldiers have read, and it was recommended reading at Sanders, called uh, 18 Platoon by Sidney Jerry. And even back then, I think his book was written in the 70s, he was saying that he was kicking back against this revisionism that the Germans were better fighters than the Allies. Uh, but this book changed my way of thinking about the Second World War, and that uh, you know the Germans are seen as very agile, 
good fighters and the Allies were seen as a bit plodding. But what I didn't realize was that the Allies had a policy of steel, not blood. So they, they would sacrifice equipment rather than people. Uh, so, and again, it pointed out this was an industrialized war that the Germans couldn't win. Uh, and everybody's heard about Tiger tanks and Panther tanks. But when you dig down into the facts, there was only a couple of thousand of these tanks produced. They were hugely overcomplicated. Uh, on the other flip side, the Allies produced something like 70,000 Sherman tanks uh, using production line methods, headlights that were used on Dodge trucks. And uh, everybody talks about Tiger tanks knocking out loads of Shermans, but what they don't point out, in one of the battles in Normandy, Goodwood, they knocked out something like 200 t- British and American tanks, but something like 80% of them were serviceable within three days. Right, yeah. So it's, it's a really uh, uh, good antidote. Also, it was saying things like people fetishize uh, German weapons, and he brings it down again into industrialization production methods. You could produce two Bren guns for the same cost as an MG42. Uh, and, you know, People go on about the rate of fire of MG42, but because to prevent the barrel overheating and the barrel was a real bugger to change compared to a Bren gun, the rates of fire were more or less the same. Mm. Uh, and, and the final point he said was, you know, the Germans spent a lot of time because of Hitler inventing the gem, the weapons of the 1950s, like the right. V2 uh, yeah. jet planes. And we really, a lot of time, just refined weapons of the 1930s and made them really good. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so it was... A, what still stands for me, though, is it's gobsmacking, even what I've just said there, what it took to beat the Germans in World War Two, though. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I'm particularly interested in the the, the sort of uh, mention of the tanks there because I'm, I'm actually reading a really good book at the moment called uh, From Alamein to Zemzem, uh, Keith Douglas, and he, he was a, a tank officer um, at Alamein. And, you know, he's talking a lot about that where... This this tank's out of action, but literally, you know, meters behind them was the um, the the Remy um, and the fixers, and and they were getting the tanks back up. So he literally jumped out of a tank with his bedroll and got into another tank which had just been, you know, providing it. So yeah. it's that that roll on roll off sort of um, scenario of of keeping the equipment around. Yeah, there was a classic tale in that book of a, a, a SARS commander who exactly what you said he had th- he had three tanks shot out from him in one day and literally grabbed his possessions and jumped into the next one and it happened to him three times yeah okay uh so Kev, what's yours mate keep the uh <clears throat> world war ii theme going it's a book by a writer called john ellis and it's called one day in a very long war and it's wednesday the 25th of october 1944 uh, again not mainstream, but basically he chose one day in the whole of the Second World War and he talks about, um, he does it through a succession of uh, little stories about the whole of the conflict or the campaign. So everything from Europe, Italy to Japan, the Manhattan um, project as well. So he's, he's got a snapshot. Each chapter is a different theatre, what is the workers in factories, whether it's the building of the atomic bomb or the or the, the project itself, whether it was the conflict in Europe in various parts, the conflict in South Asia as well. And I just thought it was an interesting concept to 
to give a snapshot. It was almost like a briefing of that day across the whole world uh, as as World War Two was raging. Uh, you know, just after obviously D Day, and that the Allies were all in, in mainland Europe as well as operating in, in Italy. But uh, I found it. I think if it, if he did another one and another date, it's just to see the differences and the political side as well. So it's, it's worth if you've got the time because you can dip in and out of it on the certain chapters because they're linked only by the day, but not necessarily and by the war, but not linked by personalities. So they talk about you know the conversation between the field marshals on that day, down to the young soldier in Burma fighting the Japanese on that day. So it's a really good insight into. You know, the global war, as it was. When was that written, Kev? It was written. Oh, you asked me a question now. I'll have to look at my... Uh... <laughs> That's not fair, is it? It's published it, in oh... 1999, it was published. All right, okay. But it was, uh, it, it was an unusual one because I never saw it before. And I picked it up many years ago. And it was one that I could dip into the chapters of areas I found more, you know, like the, the, the campaign in the Far East. Is he pretty fair, though? Because I tend to find a lot of these books, if it's an American author, they tend to be quite American-centric. If it's a Brit, you know, the, the same. No, so is he quite it, fair across it, the it, piece? It, it's very factual because he talks about a Canadian army, to a British army, the Americans. Um, talks about the German army as well. He's trying to get a snapshot from their side on that day. I thought it was quite well-balanced because it was all factual. He wasn't trying to give a, a piece about it. It was what was going on that day. It's like a, a diary a world diary of that day in different aspects of the, the campaign, whether in the air, on the land or sea. But I say, there's even a chapter about the Manhattan Project in the building of the atomic weapons. I thought it was, um, it, it was just an interesting way to look at the war. It was like having a newspaper that was covered the whole world properly. Yeah. So it was more journalistic than, uh, than like a normal book about the I, Second I, World War. Yeah, I, I think one thing that would... Um be really fascinating is is almost um you know what all of these individuals didn't know what was go- that was going on so you can imagine the squaddy in burma who's got yeah. absolutely no idea of, of of a wider picture and likewise the field marshal doesn't know what it's like to be in in that jungle situation no, there so yeah, it, yeah it's definitely so you can only do many years later to gather all that information but it was there was no world wide web there was no internet there was no Twitter or any of that sort of stuff. So the only way people found out bits was obviously by the newsreels that people were getting sent back every every odd week. But you're never going to get the full picture until, you know, and 50 that's a years later. Hindsight, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm going to make you have a difficult choice now because we're getting pushed for time because uh, we've had a, such a good conversation about the books we've had so far. <gasps> so we're, going, we're only going to do one more book each. Okay. Okay. So... Pressure's on there to pick your one out that your last two. So over to you, Simon. Uh, again, a tough choice. So, so I think I'm going to have to go with um, a, a travel book and um, the wonderful, wonderful Dervla Murthy. So she's got to be one of the best um, travel writers of all of all time, really. Uh, an Irish lady who, um, in in her book Full Tilt, she basically tells the tale of her ride from Dublin to India. Um, in the 1960s and, and it's a case of she um, as a young girl she was given a bicycle and an atlas and she flicked open the atlas and said one day I'm going to ride the and, and 
basically she did. But but what really um, struck me, and, and I, I, I love travel, and so it was really the fact that she undertook an extremely strenuous journey, but, but she didn't big up herself. She, she was essentially saying, here I am, I'm on my bike, da, 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 and this is what I saw. So, so there's no bravado, no bragging about it, no, you know, the, a lot of modern accounts of travel kind of try to make things seem more difficult than they were and we were on a bus for four hours and it was quite cramped but but you know she, she talks about it really matter of fact and, and really focuses on um the people she meets and and the lives um they led but but it's also in a quiet way you know she carried a pistol with her because she was a, a lady traveling by herself in those days and you know she's just an outstanding individual and if you ever get a chance to read any of her books um she, she's just got a real fascinating way of, of delving really into the heart of the country and she went through afghanistan yes yeah, she, afghanistan, um, she, she did um she took her young daughter at the time um i think six years old and and just went walking off through Afghanistan and you know any if, if you imagine the hardships of an Afghanistan winter and she's just going well you know so we put up Shrug in a corner and we we just strolled on and we didn't have food today but we thought we might get you know there, there's no uh, yeah you know extremely difficult conditions but 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 she went with the the sheer joy of of new things travel. experience and travel so yeah i think that's one of the things we, we 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 don't really appreciate you know you can fly almost anywhere in the world well coronavirus accepted these days but travel within countries is actually a lot more restricted than you should yeah. be because yeah. afghanistan used to have the hippie trail didn't it people Absolutely. get to yeah. iran yeah. iraq yeah. And, 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 and stay there yeah and I, and I think that's you know and 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 it's everything's changed so much you know i i was in pakistan um late 80s and I, I still rate it as the most beautiful, hospitable country I've ever, you know, been to. And um, but a lot of people would have a completely different perspective on it now. You know, yeah, Islam, you, you said you went to Islamabad, a hotbed of yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. well, 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 we we were up uh, ended up in Gilgit, so which is the northwest frontier, um, the tribal zones. Which, yeah, I mean, I I, I could talk forever about the, the issues, but but one of one of the really interesting things about about that area and, and about the Islamification, if you like, of, of Pakistan, it, it, it was all down to the birds of prey. So the um, the Emirates uh, princes went up to Pakistan because that's where they'd get the hawks the to, to look good on their arm, the hunting hawks. And when they got up there, they found that no one had food, no one had shelter, no one had education. And so they said, well, we can get in here and we can make a... We can make them follow our beliefs, and you know, the people of Pakistan were were completely. You know, I went there; there was hardly a veil to be seen. Um, you know, it was different, but but because these um, Emirati princes came in to buy the hawks, they saw an opportunity and, and and walked into the vacuum of you know what was a corrupt uh, regime, which meant that people were living in an extreme poverty and. Um, they saw an opportunity and took it. Yeah, and just shows you all down yeah, from there. Yeah. Okay, so um, my last choice then is a book called The Last Enemy by a guy called Richard Hillary. Uh, he was an Aussie, uh, educated at Oxford, and he's a stereo- stereotypical Spitfire pilot. He was well off. Well, maybe not all of them were well off, but he was certainly <laughs> dashing and he was handsome. You see pictures of him. He's a blonde, good-looking guy. 
uh, looked a bit like a film star. And he wrote the last enemy in the interval between being shot down during the Battle of Britain in September 1940 and his death on a night training flight when he returned to service in 1943. And he's only 23 when he died. And one of the reasons I found this book so fascinating was it got me into a guy called Archibald McKindle, who was a New Zealand plastic surgeon. Um, and he did a lot of pioneering work uh, at a centre for plastic and jaw surgery in East Grinstead, and he reconstructed a lot of the faces and the hands of severely burned Allied aircrew. Um, if you go on YouTube and you Google him, there's some amazing footage of his early work where guys are in the wards and they've got the they're using tissue from their shoulders to go and reconstruct their noses. So, it, but it's live. So it's um, they're using the blood vessels from the shoulder to feed into it as it's attached to the nose. Mm. So uh, an amazing guy, and he really pioneered sort of plastic surgery and burns repair as we know it. Because a lot of the guys, those planes back then, they didn't have self-sealing tanks. You know that the. the the fuel containers were forward of where the pilot sat, so when they went up in flames, the flames were getting pushed back into their faces and they got severely burned. So it's an amazing book. It's really well written, and it reads like a, a proper novel. It's these descriptions of his time at Oxford, his flight training, and his friendships during adversity and war are absolutely fantastic. And again, you know, Kevin and I have talked about this in the past. You forget the age of these guys. You know, he was 23. And he likes a Guy Gibson of the Dam Busters, who a, had a VC, a DSO in bar, a DFC in bar, and he was 26 when he died. You know, it's a generation that is just unbelievable. So that's my choice there, mate. So, Kev, what's your last one? Sticking with the RAF then. <clears throat> it's called Falcon 607 by Roland White, and it was the last Falcon raid. It was the raid on the Falklands. And it goes through the whys and should we do this? Um, because logistically, it was a massive logistical exercise uh, to get, because there are two Vulcans, they had the reserve Vulcan and the Vulcan that dropped the bombs. Uh, the, it was 17 refueling flights. They had the Victors. And all this was done months before the Victor uh, refueling aircraft and the Vulcan were going out of service as a strategic nuclear deterrent. Or, uh, against the Warsaw Pact. And it was never designed for this sort of operation. And I read it on one of my trips, and it's, it's quite a long read, and you can sometimes get lost in logistics. So they've got the calculations of how many refuels must be done for the Vulcan and how many refuels must be done for each of the Victors as well. To get the fuel down there, the Victors also had to have in-flight refueling. Loads of errors, loads of issues that could go wrong. Uh, with a real old aircraft to deliver, realistically, um, you know, some HE onto a runway. But, it, but you know, you, as you're reading through, was the was it done for any, you know, was it done to make us feel better because we were striking back before the fleet got down there and the land campaign can, that started? Um, it was the last sort of, I almost look at like a Second World War um, when we were looking for new ideas. You know, you talk about the dam busters to attack the dams, you know, was it going to make a big difference to the war? Was it actually to show we could do it against the enemy? And it was almost like, was that sort of the intent? Is to show the Argentinians that 8,000 miles away, we're still going to reach out, we're still going to attack you. But a real good book, I, and I've not been RAF or anything like that. Um, I found it fascinating, the whole story. He's just written a new book, it's about to be released as well, about the Harriers and the Falklands. 
Uh, that'd be a good book. Because again, no, outstanding piece of kit. And, and I think as well, we've we've sort of you know touched upon this as well. But um, for, for for people of of our generation, I guess, um, you're also able to all you know watch this on TV as you're eating your chips and sausage. You know, it was yeah, it was being yeah. beamed into our living rooms as it was happening, and and I think that was possibly a turning point as well in the way. Um, well, it was certainly in the way the media reported, um, at least in the UK, on yeah. on. Um, military operations you know that the embedded um, tr- um media as well but i think that ties into what we we're talking about earlier simon about how with vietnam i mean they reckon that the media had a heck of an influence on the on the public negatively uh about the vietnam war and i think part of the embedded journalist piece was about keeping hold yeah. of that narrative yeah yeah, yeah definitely yeah, yeah. So uh, i think for me the Vulcan campaign, that, that part of the campaign, was a bit of showing that, you know, when everyone says you can't do it, we, we still have the ability to do something. That's, it's really difficult, and it's the benefit outweighed by the, 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 the complexity and risks. And I thought we can still push it when we need to as a nation. Yeah, yeah and, and, and I wonder if there's some um, parallels here with, with, with things like the worldwide response to COVID in a way, in that mm. you know, things are having to be done swiftly in, in ways that we hadn't yeah. thought. But but yeah, we're, we're actually saying, look, as human beings, we can actually come up with things that, that you probably yeah, didn't think, think we so. could, but here we are. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue now into the Falklands episode, which is the next episode with Jimmy Morham. So Jimmy Warren was our uh, chief instructor, and he was X three para. And Jimmy's going to come on and talk about his uh, time in the Falklands with Third Battalion, the Parachute Regiment, and the sort of the lessons he learned from there, and that he applied to the selection course for our unit. So we're getting to the end now, and as normal, we're going to finish off with Desert Island Debts, which is Simon's choice of film and luxury item. So Simon, what are you going to pick? Yeah, well. I'm afraid I'm uh, I'm not going to get any points for originality on this one, but um, I, I just can't go past um, the Great Escape as a movie. Um, you know the, the the classic story of of an escape uh, during the Second World War um, from from a German prisoner of war camp. And for me, that what it's a film that always gets shown around um, this time of year. But but for me, it's the little. Um, vignettes with within it so the little bits of the story and i think most of us can you know you you remember that the cooler king you remember steve mcqueen on his motorbike jumping um donald pleasant's picking up the needle to show he wasn't you know losing his eyesight and, and things like that the good uh, luck old chap yeah the train absolutely on the train station <laughs> but but it, but it was one of those ones where um it didn't need a big explosions. You know, obviously there was action and, and, and suspense, but, you know, it was made quite, it was quite a basic film structure, um, but it just showed all of these uh, characters and, and what they were going through and, and, and probably probably some of the insights into to what it was actually like. There was a little bit of, um, there was one German guard who was susceptible to a bit of flattery and bribery and things like that. And, you know, there was, um, yeah, it, it gave a really good insight. And it, it's just something I, I can't 
stop enjoying every time I watch that movie. And mega quotable, because I remember Absolutely. being down on survival courses and you're making kits, you're making improvised equipment and all the one-liners from The Great yeah. Escape were coming yeah. out on that as well. Yeah, great film. Yeah. So, what's your luxury item this time? I'm, I'm actually very intrigued about this. Yeah, well, again, you see, you see, you know, there's, I've, I've come into this podcast down the line and a, a few things have, have gone and I know there's been a lot of alcohol mentioned and, and I, I, I've... <laughs> I've never been a drinker, so it, I think it's something there. Is this in case your wife listens to this, is it? Uh, that might be it. But but actually, what I've gone for is um, a classic piece of kit that um, for a certain period of time, I'm sure I'm sure it's even forgotten about now, but was uh, de rigueur for, for the troops, and that was the American poncho liner. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. It, it, it's essentially... Um, it was a camouflage blanket, um, <laughs> you know. That, that, that's what it was. But 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 it became something that that we all wanted to get hold of. And you know, the the idea was it would keep you warm when you were cold, and it would keep you cool if it was too hot. And and it was essentially you could just wrap it around yourself. And if you're in an ambush position or something like that, it was it was easy to to have on and wrap on. But um, I particularly like mine and that it came with a bit of a story and we were um we were doing a bit of an exercise with the um an american at an american base and this is where we were doing stabo activities fergie you may remember oh, getting, yeah hold round by helicopter yeah oh. and we we were we were doing a, a lot of work there and we were doing various exchanges with with the americans and, and we'd you know, they'd go to the gym and we'd go to the bar and they'd go to the gym <laughs> and we'd go to the bar. And um but but I one of these typical American bodybuilder types came up to me and he said, you know, I really want a cap badge. Can you get me a cap badge? And I, you know, ripped my cap badge out of my beret because hey I'm not that flashy looking soldier anyway, so I, I didn't mind losing a cap badge. So I gave him a cap badge and he said, what do you want in return? And I said, well, I'm after a poncho liner. And he said, no problem. I'll get you a poncho liner. So he gives me this poncho liner. And um, I, I went back into the room and I was sharing a room um, with, with this young American soldier and um, put my poncho liner in, in my Bergen. And he comes in and he's looking really upset and i said mate what's up with you and he goes ah oh, you know that chad and i go yeah yeah i know chad he seems a good guy he goes man he came up to me says give me your poncho liner or i'll rip your head off and i go shove that poncho liner further down into the burger so yeah you know something i think would be um ideal for those uh desert island nights when you've, you've only got a, a bottle of whiskey to to keep you warm that would come in handy for me well, that's been great, mate. Simon, thanks for coming on. It's really great to see you. Can't remember, it must have been bloody 20 years since I've seen you. So it's, it's been a while. And still looking youthful. It just, you know, I'm sure you've got a picture in the attic somewhere. Yeah, yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, also thanks for, to our listener for your continued support and suggestions. And as usual, if you want to get in touch, our email address is at the bottom of the show notes. Please support us on social media, including Instagram and Facebook. Uh, and we're even on YouTube, though not a lot of moving pictures there. You just get the sound. And more importantly, if you've downloaded us from iTunes, please give us a review. That's the best way of getting the uh, podcast out to a wider audience. I've already mentioned that our next guest is Jimmy Morham from the Parachute Regiment, our chief instructor, and he'll be discussing the Falklands War. 
And uh, finally, thanks again to Nick Beale for sponsoring the series and offering technical support for his company, ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.